Coming up on Tech Nation, Stanford Emerita psychology professor Barbara Tversky talks about memory, spatial thinking, design, and creativity. She's here today with Mind in Motion, how action shapes thought. Since action is everywhere around us, from the air and sunlight, the blood flowing through our veins, right down to molecules and atoms. We'll talk about how the mind can override perception, how feeling comes before logic, and how we organize things in our world the way we organize our minds. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In a 2013 Tech Nation interview, Poe Bronson talked about his book, Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. He cites numerous scientific studies, and in many, the scientists ask people to chew sponges. I asked him, what's up with that? Scholars, researchers are really interested in measuring the telltale biomarkers of competition and performance. And this technology has gotten sophisticated enough now that you can get a little saliva uh, and you can spit into a little tube or into a cup. But the easiest way to do it today is to use a salivette and you chew the salivette like a piece of chewing gum for 30 seconds and you spit it out. And the scholars will measure all sorts of biomarkers off just this little saliva test. It could be as simple as something that's looking for like alpha amylase, a broad marker for sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight response activity, or you can get really specific with it, you know, down to uh, minute changes in testosterone levels to uh, the whole neuroendocrine cascade that uh, works through your body. At the very beginning of the book, uh, there was a, a scholar out of Germany who did this in the wine country, and she convinced a whole bunch of people to go skydive for the very first time. And they jumped out of a plane at 10,000 feet solo, you know, chewing a salivette to see exactly what was going on in their body <laughs> the exactly moment that of moment. terror. Recorded. Scaring them to death was exactly the point of I'd her swallow it. That's the problem. And, and yeah, and the, and the markers said these people are freaked out, right? But what was interesting is she made them do it uh, three times, sometimes three times over a couple days or, or, or even on the same day or even in a single hour. And what she found is that you acclimate to free-falling towards Earth at 120 miles an hour very quickly, that even your second jump, the stress level goes down by a third, and on your third jump, it's like driving in traffic, uh, that you acclimate to this very well. But meanwhile, there was this other scholar just a little north, and he was studying ballroom dancing competitions, and he was having amateur ballroom dancers who were there for the regional dance competition chew little salivettes and no matter how much experience they'd had, whether they'd had one-year experience or five years or 10 years or 15 years, no matter what, their stress response was just as high as anybody else, pretty much close to, but not quite, of a first parachute jump, which is interesting. So why can people acclimate to jumping out of an airplane at 10,000 feet going 120 miles an hour towards Earth, but can't acclimate 
to the unique stress of competing, because it wasn't the dancing that was causing the stress. It was the being judged. It was the sense of winning and losing, the sense of having to avoid making a single mistake. And that is very interesting because we've heard for quite a while now that it takes 10 years of practice to become an expert, to become an authority in something, to be great at it. And we felt something was missing from that success formula. That's not wrong, just that there's an additive thing, which is that we're not judged on how we practice. We're judging how we actually perform when the band is playing, the lights are bright, and the music is going. And what it turns out is that while we all have this enormous stress flood when we have to compete, we interpret it differently. And our, people, our bodies do. Our bodies physiologically interpret it differently, but our minds interpret it differently. That if you ask expert performers, professional athletes or professional musicians and the like, they all get really anxious and stressed out before a big performance. But they see that as beneficial. To them, it excites them, it awakens them, it gets them ready. While uh, novice performers feel that same sensation but think it's damaging their performance. And learning to go from seeing stress as harmful to seeing stress as beneficial is crucial to sort of really learning to manifest competitive fire when you have to. You might know Poe Bronson from his other books, including The First 20 Million is Always the Hardest, Nurture Shock, and What Should I Do With My Life? I was able to speak with Poe about Top Dog, the science of winning and losing on Tech Nation in 2013. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Barbara Tversky, an emerita professor of psychology at Stanford University, and today a professor of psychology at Teachers College at Columbia University. She's published extensively on memory, spatial thinking, design, and creativity, and she's here today with Mind in Motion, how action shapes thought. We'll learn how our minds and our bodies work together and have worked together since long before we had language. And now, Dr. Barbara Tversky. Barbara, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I want to say my Aunt Tilly was an animated talker, and she just she'd throw up her hands and say sort of apologetically, oh, I just talk with my hands. <laughs> you can explain that. And when I think we all talk with our hands, except when we're not supposed to because it's rude or something else. But even so, many of our thoughts can't help but get expressed in our hands. It comes out when we're trying to explain to somebody how to get somewhere or how something works. You almost can't not use your hands. And if you try explaining a complicated set of directions or a complicated process while you're sitting on your hands, it's hard to find words. <laughs> Up, down, over, right. and around. <laughs> no, absolutely. And there are many times 
when the thoughts get expressed in gesture but not in words. So I was once in, in London and trying to find a store, and I knew it was at least two turns. And the woman explaining it to me kept saying, you just go straight ahead, straight ahead, straight ahead. And it was because she's always facing forward. She didn't think about the turns, but her hands showed the turns. So I I knew she meant them, even if she couldn't find the words. Well, it's not just Aunt Tilly. I mean, it's every everyone. Um, and in fact, you start out by saying everything is in movement around us, even us. Blood is coursing through our veins, water's flowing, you know, uh, even inanimate objects, the molecules within them, they're vibrating. There's motion everywhere. Right. Nothing is static. Nothing is static. And if we were static, we couldn't survive. Even things, images frozen on the retina disappear because we need the movement to keep the stimulation on the retina going so that we perceive objects. But the action that I think is important for thought is the actions of our feet, taking us from place to place in the world, and the actions of our hands. And here humans are probably unique in the number and subtlety of actions that we can do with our hands. And both of those get translated into thought. And the reason is that the same brain structures that support navigation, remembering the paths in the world, and remembering the paths in our mind, it's the same brain structures. So we move from place to place in the world along paths, spatial paths, and we move from thought to thought in our minds along conceptual paths. And then our hands, we can push ideas forward, tear them apart, pull them together, um, throw them out. These are all actions on objects. And you almost can't talk about actions on thought without using that same language. And so we think about ideas as if they were objects, whole ones, big ones, small ones. We indicate all those things in gestures. And our thought about ideas is very much inspired by our thought about objects. And the idea that we have one thought after another, one feeling after another, that's motion in itself. Right. You almost can't keep your ideas still. And even people that meditate, I think, can't prevent those ideas from appearing. They might let them go, but they keep coming and they, one thought leads to another. And let's remember, um, language is a technology. Humans made it. And uh, that means we were around before language was. I mean, you pre-exist any technology you build. So what we're operating with here, it's not operating on language. Thank you for seeing that, because when I entered the field of cognitive psychology, language was king or, or emperor, and people thought that even spatial concepts could be reduced to what were then called propositions. So propositions came from logic, And a proposition might be a table is brown or the sun is yellow. It's a minimal assertion that can be verified. And people 
formed logic out of these propositions. It looked formal, and people, other people thought the brain worked the same way through these propositions, minimal assertions. And I kept thinking, I'm a, I'm a bit of a contrarian. What about faces? We can't begin to describe them, or facial expressions, or scenes. They defy any kind of simple propositional language, and yet we remember thousands of them, recognize them very quickly, so they must be encoded, represented in some other way that isn't like language. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, space came first, evolutionarily, and in, in, in babies, it takes a long time for babies to talk. And even when they talk, they're not explaining their thinking or their ideas. They're labeling the world. or They're trying some, to catch on to what will communicate with these crazy big people around them uh, right. <laughs> who keep using words. Right. And even we are, are stuck um, for explaining certain subtleties of emotion. So it, it had to happen in some other way, and I began, at first not systematically, at first meandering, studying the different spaces we occupy, the things in the spaces that we interact with. And then it became clear to me what I was doing. It, it was systematic, going from the space of the body to the space around the body in reach of eye or hand, to the space that's too big to be seen at a glance, the space we navigate. And I studied each of them, not just I, other people. And in each case, our representations, our thought about them was biased by the way we perceive them and by the way that we act in them. And in fact, those two are really tightly joined together. We don't learn to see without moving and without acting on objects. That's really how we learn to see, and that's how we learn about our bodies, is through that movement. So perception and action are tightly interlocked, and each of those affects the, the biases we have in understanding those three spaces. And we innately know that we're traveling through time. Gee, that's a hard question. I don't... Because you know, as I'm speaking now, I know right. it's going to be gone by the time I say the next few words. Oh, okay. And I suppose it means, I mean, there are so many ways of thinking about time, right? And some of them are accessible to consciousness and some of them aren't, like our body clocks and when we're going to get hungry and so forth, which are all governed by something within the body. But that sense of fleetingness, sure, that's, that's going to go quickly. And in fact, babies need to connect all those perceptions that keep fleeting. You know, for a small baby, if you hide an object, for the baby, it's gone. It's only there when the baby can see it, perceive it in some way. And around eight months, babies learn that if you put an object in a box, it, that's where it is. And you can pull it out again. But un until then, out of sight, out of mind. Does not exist. Right. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira again, and my guest today is Barbara Tversky. Dr. Tversky is an emerita professor of psychology at Stanford University and a professor of psychology at Teachers College at Columbia University. She's published extensively on memory, spatial thinking, design, and creativity, and she's here today with Mind 
mind in motion, how action shapes thought. You break your book into two parts, the world as it exists inside your mind and the mind as it exists in the world. Now, what's the difference? So, right. So how we represent space is a little bit what I've been talking about, these spaces that we inhabit and act in. And that's more or less the first part of the book. It's maybe a little more technical. The second part is putting the mind in the world. And we see that everywhere. In fact, there's hardly anything that in the world that we are likely to perceive that hasn't been designed by people. And the designs in the world really reflect the designs in the head. How we organized our mind is also how we organize the world. So we organize our mind into categories, food, furniture, clothing, musical instruments, those sorts of categories. And those are the departments you'll see in stores or the different stores that you'll see, how grocery stores are organized, is by the same categories that are in our minds and shared with other people so that we, we, the world serves to back up our minds and to make our minds similar. But I think a lot of that would happen anyway. You go to grocery stores all over the world and you see the pasta in one part and the fruits in the other and vegetables and dairy products in different ones. So we're putting our, we organize our minds. There's too much stuff in the world. So we need to form categories of things like food and and furniture and similarly in the world. So that's one easy way we put our, um, our minds into the world. And another important way is by themes. And themes are things that are used together. So things in the kitchen are around eating. And things in the bathroom are around um, t- taking care of cleanliness in one way or another. In the bedroom, they're for sleeping and resting. So different things that are used to, to support those activities I've called themes. And again, we have that. Grocery stores are different from restaurants and so forth. Those themes are out in the world. Another way that... So that's the organization of the world, and we can't help but see it. But there are other ways that we put the mind in the world. And here we can go back to really sort of primitive, I don't like to use that word, but but, um, technologies that don't depend on a great deal of science. So if you go back and look at cave drawings or petroglyphs, which we have all over the world, you see that people were putting their minds in the world. So maps appear almost everywhere. So somehow a representation of the space that people were living in, larger than a space that could be seen at once, was important to communities, and they put them in the world. In, in cave drawings and on petroglyphs, probably in the sand, but those didn't survive. So another common um, common artifact that we see that people put in the world is representations of people, animals, the sorts of things that were important in their daily lives. Also events. And here I want to tell one nice story that I found in researching this book. There was a petroglyph found in Kashmir, 
going back. It was dated 4,000 years ago, and it shows stick figures, a couple of them and a horned animal, bow and arrow, and one of the stick figures is pointing to the sky. And in the sky are two suns, drawn the way just children would draw them with circles with little rays coming out, but two of them. And an Indian mathematician um, looked at the dating and and went back and found there was a supernova at that time, 4,000 years ago, a supernova. So this was a striking enough event. It would be striking to us today. And an explosion in the sky that looks like the sun but isn't. So somebody inscribed that event, momentous event, in in a petroglyph. Top of the news goes on the wall of the cave. (laughs) And lasting 4,000 years. Our present news doesn't last that long at all. So, So you see going back into those ancient representations in caves all over, there are people, animals, maps, events. There's also number. But not number as we think about it, with with numerals and addition. It, it was tallies. Uh, uh, so one mark, 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 uh, mark. Exactly one mark for each thing, and no way of counting them except to mark them again. Many languages don't have words for numbers beyond one, two, and many. The languages that are extant even today. And we can presume way back there probably weren't too many numbers. Numbers is another technology that humans invented over millennia. So, but tallies appear, and they were probably used for accounting, which again is an early human need, apparently, for organizing society. How many sheep do you have? Did they all come home? Right? How are we? Taxed? How big was the fish you caught? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I have yeah. ten of them. Honest. <laughs> so, and that's a good question. I don't really know when measure, measurement came in much later, but early measurements were things like rivers would leave sediment along the banks, especially if, if there was some sort of stone along the banks. So you could you could look at the height of river over time by looking at those marks that were left. Uh, you think about trees and the, the, the circles that are left for every year, and you can see those. So there were natural ways of leaving measurement. There were self-measuring devices Right, that can tell us age of something, um, even or maybe length, even without formal measurement. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Barbara Tversky. Dr. Tversky is an emerita professor of psychology at Stanford University and a professor of psychology at Teachers College at Columbia University. She's published extensively on memory, spatial thinking, design, and creativity, and she's here today with Mind in Motion, How Action Shapes Thought. Well, I was reading your book, and you make certain text boldface as the reader reads along. So starting with the with the first chapter, chapter one, um, I'm, I'm reading a few pages, and then it appears, first general fact worth remembering. <laughs> Get my attention. Associations to names are more abstract than associations 
to pictures. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I did try to mark things that that I thought were important. So word associations are a common way of of undercovering the mind. What they don't ask is where the associations come from, and I can maybe expand on that a little later. But somebody had the brilliant idea years ago of instead of giving the word table to get associations, a picture of a table or a picture of a shoe instead of the word shoe. And it turns out that that the the associations to words tend to be categorical in some way or another and abstract. The associations to pictures go off what the picture looks like. So there's less... Um, there's less... We di- we disagree more on them, not disagree. We'll give very different kinds of associations, whereas to words we tend to give the same kinds of associations. But that idea of words being leading to more abstract and pictures leading to more diverse and and responding to the features has now been examined in many other different situations. So in situations where you have to generate ideas, say new uses for a brick, a standard um, task in creativity, we did it with more interesting objects, I think. But if you give a picture of a shoe and ask for for new uses, you end up with fewer than if you give the word shoe. And I think it's because people get fixated on the particular picture. You have to show maybe it's a woman's shoe or a man's shoe or a child's shoe. It's very specific. So it doesn't lead to as many of these new uses, new ways of using it as the word would. Because the word, you can think of different kinds of shoes. It could mean many things. Right. You can think of many kinds of shoes. So I... What I've just said may sound contradictory, that we get flatter associations to pictures than we do to to words, but those are in association tasks with highly highly routinized answers, overlearned, table, chair, shoe, sock. But if you're looking in a situation where you're coming up with new uses for an umbrella or a shoe, that's a task that asks you not to be stereotyped, to be inventive, and there you might, abstraction might help you come up with more new uses. Maybe I can say another word about abstraction. So if you think about, say, even more abstract thought like mathematics, one way that mathematicians or engineers or biologists, any kind of scientist, even an, an historian or a politician, is going to think, let's get away from the specifics of this situation. Let's look at this kind of general situation. So that's a way of going abstract. Is I'm not looking just at the Iraq War. I'm thinking of the Vietnam War and many other wars and what's similar to them and what's different. And then maybe we can come up with more interesting lessons to be taken or actions to be taken if we go abstract, if we get away from the particulars. And this, over and over again, this is hard to do. And education is meant to give us the skills to see the abstractions, but it's an uphill battle. And It's not and, just memorizing facts. Right. Right. It's seeing what's what are the essential similarities there. 
and how can I abstract away? And that gives us a kind of flexibility of thinking that is important. And is and humans are capable of. We are capable of that, absolutely. I've been speaking with Dr. Barbara Traversky, the author of Mind in Motion, How Action Shapes Thought. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, my interview with Barbara Tversky continues. We'll learn how it is when the mind overrides perception and how we feel before we think. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with psychology professor Dr. Barbara Tversky about mind in motion, how action shapes thought. So here I am thinking, oh, this is great. I know how she's organizing the book. It's going to be, here's the first thing that that's worth remembering. This must be the second, but no. Turn the page a couple of times, I get this next bold thing. First law of cognition. There are no benefits without costs. <laughs> Tell right. us what that means. Right. So a simple example, again, is categories. And we can't help but categorize simply because there are so many things in the world. And to understand them, to abstract from them, to know how to behave toward them, we need to put them in categories. We behave differently to watermelons than we do to apples and don't eat the peel of a watermelon. So we need to categorize what's a a melon-type thing that the, the peel is too hard to eat or what's something that, like a peach, where you can eat the... So we need to categorize in order to know how to behave, in order to understand its behavior. This is a dog, not a wolf. They're going to behave quite differently, even if they look the same. So we need those categories for encountering new things, for knowing how to behave, and so forth. But they can cost us, especially when we categorize human beings. And we all know the the downsides of doing that. Any of those 
ways that we simplify the world are going to have consequences, undesirable consequences. On the whole, they're probably going to work well. That's why we do them. And when you think about it, go back to babies who won't have these categories. categories. They learn, but it takes them eight or nine months. Who's family and friends and who isn't? And these are important for trust. You need to know who you can trust and so forth. So these are important categories, but it takes babies a long time to do that. You're walking down the street and avoiding obstacles or or interacting with other obstacles. You quickly need to know what's an automobile, what's a truck, what's a bicycle, who are people, what are dogs, so forth. You have to do that really quickly. If you had to go through and figure out each time what you're encountering, you'd never be able to move. So the brain is spending a lot of time early when your baby isn't doing much you think. Um, the baby is learning these categories, and they become important for behavior. But there's a cost to every category. We can't not do it, or we'd be frozen in space and time. But, but there's a benefit. Yes. The difference between perhaps a Western European formal garden and a Chinese garden. I think everyone listening to this understands what a formal garden looks like. Compare that to a Chinese garden. So thank you. I, I wrote in the introduction some words about how we structure things in the world and in the mind, and those were two examples that came to mind. Partly I wanted to tell readers that they can meander in the book. They don't have to read it in any kind of order, and they can jump around. So I drew the analogy between a formal garden where you have to stay on the path, and the path... Better. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you step on that. (laughs) Don't you let your dog on that. (laughs) Right, And, and there might be a railing so that in case you didn't notice, right? And they tend to be parallel and perpendicular and so forth. So very well organized. There, There's a central path and you can see everything from it, but you can turn right or left on the adjacent paths. But a Chinese garden is really organized in a small space and it's it's designed so you lose yourself in it. And you don't quite know where you are. So the paths are curvy and they keep going around in curves, so you're drawn forward because you don't know what's going to be there. You can't see the layout ahead of time as you can in a formal garden, so it's always mysterious, and you can get lost and disoriented because straight lines and perpendicular lines perpendicular to them are better at keeping you oriented. But if you're turning around in curves, you're disoriented, you're seeing new things, you can't see a long vista, but, you know, it's kind of fun <laughs> and mysterious. And if you just let yourself go, it's it's a fun way to enjoy a, a garden. But I could see how some people might not like it. It might be uncomfortable. But I like it as an organizing principle. Uh, as opposed to you got to lay everything out. And I remember one time I drew a map for a party I was giving. And, and one uh, engineer walked in and he was very disgusted. He said, you see this map? And of course everybody found their way to the parties. I don't know what the problem was. This is before <laughs> smartphones, obviously. And he goes, you drew this map and you, you're supposed to have north up and down. And, you know, <laughs> 
Well, nobody told me about that rule. <laughs> right, and and we did do a bunch of studies having people draw maps of where they lived, and almost never, no one puts north up. They they organize the maps around the landmarks and the main roads that they go on, whether they're biking or, or driving, and north up is irrelevant. And, you know, you hear this thing that guys are more about knowing north, south, east, west, and, and women less. And amongst those maps, often they were marked with north up. And it was usually wrong. So, <laughs> On top of that. Right. They mark it, but it was usually wrong. I just should have put N at the top of the page in an arrow. I didn't know. <laughs> right, right. So I, I want to say one more thing, if I can, about the, the messiness of a Chinese garden and the orderliness of, of a, a, an English or a formal garden. Um, think about desks that can be messy or, or everything in piles. And somebody did a nice experiment asking, again, many new uses for an object, and the messy desk was actually good for that. And I think it's because messy desks reconfigure. They're suggestive. You can see all kinds of things in them. They're like some kinds of abstract paintings where things emerge from the mess and it keeps changing. Whereas when everything is rectified into into right angles, you're caged there. It's harder to kind of be creative. But solving algebra problems was better in the in the neat desk than in the messy desk. So th- this, to me, was somewhat suggestive. I don't know how much you can generalize from one study of how you should organ, how you might think about organizing a workspace when you want to be expansive and creative or when you want to get your taxes done. <laughs> Those are two different. Be neat with your taxes. All right. Don't just tell the truth. Be neat. Right. <laughs> You'll get it right. Now, what comes to mind as well is that sometimes uh, our minds can be enabled or limited genetically. And I'm thinking about when you talked about the study recognizing emotional state just by reading eyes and eyebrows. Do you recall that study? Yeah. Yeah, it's not my work. It's very nice work. Um, on, it's the eye and the mind test, and you can find it online. And apparently autistics have more trouble, and it, it was developed by Simon Baron Cohen, who's been studying autism for years. And apparently autistics are, are, are have more difficulty recognizing the emotions. It's tricky, that whole test. And again, you can take it. It's kind of fun. Um, and it, but what is also amazing is for the rest of us how much information you get from the eyes and the eyebrows about an emotional state, and that's extraordinary. It's again defying this kind of propositional view of of how we encode and represent the world. But we're picking up just from eyes and eyebrows a great deal about what's inside that person and coming out whether that person wants it to come out or not. Ooh, so if you're a poker player, you should get some Botox <laughs> so the eyebrows do not right. move. Right. I'm all over it. At least you get you know one out of two you got, you've removed from the equation. But I think also you're saying that, hey, it's not just the eyebrows. There's the whole face and your body. Right. You, it's like 
put on a good face. It's like, yeah, but what about the rest of your body? You actually are expressing emotion through all of that. Right. And the, the advantage of the body is you can pick it up from across the street. So if somebody looks like they're about to start a fight or they're looking, they're about to faint or somebody looks drunk, you, whatever. I mean, I'm talking from the point of view of a small woman. <laughs> it's like, I was pretty impressed that you were checking out somebody who was going to start a fight, but keep right. going, keep going, Barbara. Right. I mean, and so I, I, I'm often alone on the streets, even at night, and... Um, and then you have to be alert to to dangers and 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 so forth. So those body movements you can really see from afar, whereas facial movements you might not see from afar, especially if you're seeing the back of the person. I, I remember once walking home in London on a Friday night, which is a big drink, drinking night. I was walking back from the theater to my hotel, and there was a man walking. I, opposite me and about to lunge at me and I could see the guy is drunk out of his mind so I sidestepped <laughs> and he fell <laughs> you know, one for I the could, girls <laughs> I could see that he was he was trying to do something but that he was incapable so it it and that happens without thinking. I mean, I can relate it afterwards, but it happens instantaneously. And so obviously your mind is processing, processing that without words, without conscious thinking. Right. And you think about baseball pitchers and catchers and batters, and the, apparently the batters know what's going to happen to the ball before it's out of the pitcher's hand. So in, They can in, tell by the body. Yeah. Yeah, it's you can think when you think about it, the pitcher is going to pitch a different pitch. The body has to change slightly, right? You know, right? And, uh, and and these batters are so good and so experienced, and the catchers too, that they're picking that up. And I mean, athletics is again an area where it's body to body, and then you add um, faking. You talked about having Botox to hide your your, <laughs> your eyebrows, <laughs> right? And I think probably magicians learn to control that so that they get you to look the other way while they're doing their trick and basketball players fake you and right so they learn not only what you might be interpreting but how to fool you they have to get you operating on a non-conscious basis reacting right. on a non-conscious basis it's much too fast i never thought i was not suspicious of basketball players on your list until now but now i'm <laughs> totally i'm into that i'm into that you know a, a different extension of simplifying things talk about change blindness what how does that work right and again change blindness is not my work it's a beautiful work of others and it gets back to the first cognitive laws there are, there are advantages and disadvantages we get very experienced at knowing where it, interpreting the world, especially the world, as you say, that we see every day. And, um, and so we're not paying attention to it because we don't need to. We just need to manage that car and not get in a collision and get to work or wherever we're going. So we stop seeing that. And the change blindness experiments are, are just lovely. Uh, I can explain one of them that was done by two Dans, Simons and Levine. They were on the Yale ca campus, and two men were walking by with a door. 
And so they're walking by with a door. But before that, one of these young men is explaining to is is asking some other person how to get somewhere on campus. And there's a map, and the other person is showing where to get on campus. So then the people with the door walk by, and they're between these two people talking about where to go. Okay, but unbeknownst to the person explaining. Um, the the person originally asking, let's call him Dan, switches places with one of the people carrying the board. They walk, the board walks away, and now the ex, the man explaining how to get somewhere is no longer seeing Dan, seeing Pete. Okay, <laughs> and Pete is about the same size and age and gender as Dan, so it's not like shifting to a, me, a grandmother, from a, a graduate student. It's a small change, but most people don't pick it up. They, they, <laughs> they don't realize that the person that they've been talking to is different from um, the person that they started out talking to. So this has been a demonstration done in many cases where you switch the people and people, about half the people don't notice. There are other experiments like that. You can show photographs in rapid succession, say, of people entering an airplane, going upstairs for a jet, it's army troops, and in one photograph, one of the engines is missing, and the other photograph is there. You show them in rapid succession, and people don't pick up that an engine is missing. So they've coded it as an airplane, and they've coded it as, as army troops going up the stairs. The engine, okay, doesn't matter anymore. They're not going to interact with that engine. It isn't important to them. So they d people don't notice it. And I think what's surprising in addition about all this work is not so much that we don't notice that the person has changed or the engine isn't there, is we aren't aware that we don't notice. I think that's what's surprising, that when we look at the world, we get this vivid, colorful image of lots of stuff going on and lots of things in the world. And we sort of think, well, there it is. How, how are we going to forget it in, 30, in less than 30 seconds? And I think that's the import to me of that work, is that we aren't even aware of not taking in that information because we can check it and see it. It would be simple to check, yeah. but we can't. Yeah, we don't remember it, and we probably don't need to remember it. Why burden our memory with every second of everything that we see? It would be silly. Now, on another note, on your fourth law of cognition, <laughs> for those of you who said, wait a minute, what happened to the other number? That's like, doesn't matter. We're, this is a Chinese garden interview. <laughs> That's how it's working here. That's how it's working. We don't have to go down through the numbers. Um, you note that the mind can override perception. Now, is that part of change blindness, or are you talking about something very specific there? Um, I, I think it's probably something more specific, but you ask a good question, and there's a nice example of it, and, and uh, of that, and it's an old study by Jerry Brunner and Molly Potter, and they showed one they showed photographs, color photographs, to one group out of focus, to another group in full focus, and the group that saw them out of focus, they would gradually come into focus. And as they were watching these 
photographs come into focus, they were asked to, to guess what was there. And the ones that were out of focus generated a lot of false hypotheses about what people thought they were seeing. Oh, well, a, uh, a potato, a, oh, it's, oh, what is it? Right. It's a bus. Yeah. It's an elephant. It's right. And <laughs> yeah. they would put it together, this blurry photograph, and see something in it. It's like seeing images in the clouds. We can all do it. We're good at that. And th- often their hypotheses were wrong. So in, in, the photographs were deliberately chosen for that reason, that they were odd angles of, of not-so-familiar things. The one I'm thinking of was a fire hydrant. And um, so that when they came in full focus, people couldn't see them. They, they, they didn't understand what they were seeing because they had this wrong hypothesis about what they were seeing. So they didn't see what they were... They couldn't see what was right in front of their eyes. Because they expected to see something, something else, else because of their hypotheses. Right. The mind was overriding right. their perception. And and that can happen in big time. That's a pretty benign example, but it can happen big time. In the, I mean, we think of terrible incidents where cops are, are chasing people that they think might be thieves, and they think it's a gun, and it isn't and with disastrous consequences. But they're primed to see that, just as we can be primed to see the elephant when it turns into a fire hydrant, and we can't recognize the fire hydrant. And probably we would have difficulty perceiving things in the world if we weren't predicting what we were seeing. And on the whole, predictions are fairly good. If we're in a park, we might predict swings and slides and water fountains. We wouldn't predict that in, in, a, in a movie theater. So, But there are other things that we would expect, and then we find them. So working off these predictions is another way that we simplify the world in order to interact with it. But then it can lead to even disastrous consequences. And it seems to me, if you don't want people to recognize that fire hydrant, you want to get in there early and suggest that it's something else. Uh, that, I don't know how much that would work, but that would be interesting. I don't know. I'm thinking yeah. of the Mueller report, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that fire hydrant. <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking with Dr. Barbara Tversky, an emerita professor of psychology at Stanford University and a professor of psychology at Teachers College at Columbia University. Her book is Mind in Motion, How Action Shapes Thought. You are listening to Tech Nation. In the second part of this book, there's a lot about spatial thinking and spatial skills, a lot of which are near and dear to engineers who want to design things and they think about things from all different perspectives. And um, What are the kinds of things today that might be useful for people to develop in terms of spatial skills? What are the skills and and what would be useful for them? So spatial skills are like verbal skills. There are many of them. There isn't a single one, right? We know people with big vocabularies that can't articulate a thought clearly and vice versa. So there are many verbal skills, many spatial skills, and they they may partially correlate. People have been trying for 50 years to make sense of the relations among the spatial skills, and nobody's quite figured it out, except to say that there are many. 
Um, one that's been used in many tasks and does predict behavior is one called mental rotation, where you imagine something like the letter R upside down, only it's usually imagining something more complicated, a complex shape. And can you imagine that in another orientation? So that's called mental rotation. And that particular skill does correlate with STEM abilities or with STEM performance, so that that's science, technology, engineering, math, that's STEM. And people who are good at spatial skills tend to be better at those, at, at STEM fields than people who are low in spatial skills. But the correlations are small. And... Mental rotation can be solved in many ways, piecemeal, as opposed to m imagining the whole thing moving at once. So human beings are, are blessed with alternative strategies for, for solving things, and even people with lower skills can. The nice thing about mental rotation is it can be trained. And somebody once asked me to write a book about getting spatial skills, and I said it would be a very short book. The answer would be the Carnegie Hall answer, practice. So, and, and that's what the research has shown. There was a big meta-analysis of many, many, many attempts to increase performance on this metal rotation task, and almost everything worked. So almost anything you can tr think of that will improve spatial skills will work on that. One of my gripes is, is that those spatial skills aren't fostered in elementary school. So reading maps, reading graphs, and these are not necessarily dependent completely on mental rotation, but they are dependent on interpreting visual information that's on a page or a screen. And these aren't taught, and uh, in, they need to be taught, because our world is increasingly visual and spatial. There are graphs everywhere that we need to know how to interpret. And in fact, there are more direct way of communicating than language. So uh, developing these skills is important, but it somehow isn't attended to in elementary school. And What's interesting to me, too, about spatial skills is you know when someone doesn't have good verbal skills because you're talking with them. You can't know when someone doesn't have good spatial skills. And I'm often astounded by people who... I have two friends in the National Academy of Sciences, eminent scientists, and they can't find their way in the world. And you know, it's astounding, and you don't really... Don't ask them to drive a car from A to B. <laughs> they learn the route, memorize, and they can't figure out new routes. So that always... They, they break out in a sweat when they see detour. <laughs> right, and, and you know, I once had an honor student, and this is, again, before cell phones, and we were taking a field trip to the Exploratorium, and they were carpooling, and I gave everyone, all the drivers, a map. This is an honor student at Stanford. She said, I don't do maps. <laughs> <laughs> so I gave her instructions how to get up there, and, and she got there and so forth. But somehow... 
is if she'd learn. And there are games you can play that are really fun with maps. I used to sit my kids in a car when we were going somewhere on a trip, and I'd say, you be the map reader and don't fall asleep. (laughs) (laughs) That that last part didn't work. That part didn't (laughs) work. (laughs) But they'd at least learn to read maps with great joy. One last area I want to ask you about is your third law, and there are nine laws of cognition. The third one is feeling comes first. Not thinking, feeling. Right. And this is, again, not my law. It comes from one of my former teachers and friends, Bob Zients, who's no longer with us, who did some lovely experiments with nonsense figures, looking at whether people recognized them and how much people liked them. And those the liking, the feeling, was independent of the recognition. And in fact, you liked figures that you'd seen more often. And of course, that should correlate with memory, too. But the liking increased before the memory did. So figures that they'd seen more frequently, they liked more, even if they couldn't remember them. And those, the liking and the memory are, are a great deal separable. And what is interesting is that that seeing things more often does make you like them. It's a good thing for marriages and and children and all other social situations. But that reaction, gut reaction of approach avoid, is again really fast before you recognize what it is that you're seeing. Let me out of here. This looks dangerous. So let me in there. This looks great. Um, Yeah. It comes. It seems to come earlier, inseparable. Well, Barbara, this is terrific. We haven't scratched the surface of your book. <laughs> you have so much in here. It's such a. It's such an enjoyable book in the sense that uh, you read something and then you say, you know, I think I've experienced that. You know, and you're like, how to scratch your chin, and then you're like, oh, I got to go back to reading. You know, so it's a, as you say, it's a Chinese garden organization. <laughs> you know, thank you, and I, it, I do try to make it accessible with examples, but I should say. The plural of anecdotes isn't data, and all of those statements are backed up with data. I just explain them through examples. Thank you so much. My guest today is Barbara Tversky. Her book is Mind in Motion, How Action Shapes Thought. It's published by Basic Books. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nocktrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.